Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists, to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. If you're a career artist, a working artist, a fine artist, I want to see you in Washington, D.C. The Clark Healings Fund is hosting an art business conference March 23rd and 24th. This is a two-day intensive incubator to optimize your art career to meet your goals. You'll blueprint your career, develop a personal sales strategy, master your brand story, and build a powerful network to help you achieve your mission as an artist. To get your tickets and attend, go to clarkhealingsfund.org DC. This March is the month you accelerate your art career. You will mark your art career as having two parts, before and after DC. I hope to see you there. Again, clarkhealingsfund.org DC. Now, you may have noticed we have new music on the show. We'd like to thank composer Frederick Alden Terry for the new intro and outro music. Our guest today is Donna Lee Nizio. Now, Donna is a painter based in Beaufort, North Carolina. She's a graduate fellow of CHF's Art Business Accelerator program and an emeritus advisor for the new crop of current fellows. Her work is representational and explores the nautical and coastal themes of her home. Her sales strategy involves partnering with cause-based organizations to amplify their messages through the use of fine art. And recent projects include a resident artist position with Friends of the North Carolina Maritime Museum and a collaboration with the Kit Jones Project. Donna will be joining us as a panelist at our Washington, D.C. conference. So again, if you're not coming to D.C., you need to be. Visit clarkhealingsfund.org D.C. And Donna, welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. Hi, everybody. It's good to be here. Donna, I'm, I want to start off by just asking you, what area of your art business has progressed the most over the course of the Art Business Accelerator program, which you just graduated from? Oh, wow. For me, everything has gone up. You know, rising tides lift all boats and everything, everything has gotten just a little bit better. But for me, being able to define what I want and where I want to go with my career has helped me immensely in so many different ways because it helps me, you know, not do things and make choices on different opportunities. A lot of opportunities come and it just helps focus and keep you moving forward to your ultimate destination. So I guess defining that and cutting away all the extra just makes it so much easier. So getting really precise about the career blueprint has been uh, a boon for you. What about the opposite? What's the steepest learning curve uh, that you've had in the program? For me, I don't ever do anything the way everyone else does. And I work on my own time frame. So when I get information, I got to think about it. I got to turn it around so I can make it fit what I need to do. So sometimes working with other people's time frames is a little more difficult for me. And some of the things that I've learned, like, for example, social media and the CRM and stuff like that, I understand it. I see the importance of it. Not sure I want to integrate it into what I'm doing at this time, maybe later. So when you're trying to learn something and you're not automatically putting it into use, it's not as fluid with what you're doing. You may have to give it a little bit more thought. So that's kind of, for me, it's on hold. So it sounds like a, a lot of the technology is the initial hurdle. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, any successes in your business that you'd attribute to um, the last couple of years uh, in your course of study? Absolutely. One of the things is 
when, when you decide what you want to do, you become more intentional in what you choose to do. So for me, like you had mentioned um, in the intro, that I had a residency with the North Carolina Maritime Museum. And something like that, that was self-initiated. I initiated that with intention. They didn't offer it to me. It didn't even exist. I created it. I knew it would help me in the long run with advertising and goals and people who get residencies get more residencies. I went to them and said, hey, I would really like a residency. This is what I would like to entail. Here's what I want from you. Here's what you'll get from me. And that intention, after defining myself and redefining what I want, I can actually move with a little more skill and a little more focus in order to get where I want to go. It just makes it so much easier. You know, I want to dig a little bit into uh, your brand story and your identity as an artist. And in the past, you've talked about painting sort of working class subjects and being from a working class background yourself. Is that part of your brand narrative as a painter, the, the sort of down to earth uh, element of your brand? Absolutely. Uh, when I was growing up, I definitely from a blue collar town in Rhode Island, I never wanted to be an artist because artists work in mills. Every artist I knew worked in a mill. So I was like, no way, <laughs> no way. But then here I am. I've made the decision, a conscious decision, that I was going to be a professional artist and took away all the safety nets that I had and decided I'm going to do that. And my ability to actually work, the drive to work, the get up and, oh, I'm inspired today or I'm not, that's not me. I am get up. Here's what I have to do today. This is my list. So to me, it's that blue-collar work ethic applied to fine art. Most people don't put the two together. I do. So Donna, um, is that working-class background uh, or style or flavor uh, also part of your sales strategy uh, in some way, the way in which you, you know, pursue uh, relationships? Uh, yeah, it has to be because that's who I am. And you're better off making a sale as as you. And that style of me going out and actually selling, I sell to people more in person than online. I'm much more comfortable actually being there than dealing with on, online sales. So I would have to say, yeah. But I mean, does it go for, in terms of the specific sales strategy? If we think that, you know, one could sell retail or wholesale or um, sell only to collectors, there's all kinds of uh, roles for visual artists. Does this, for instance, affect the organizations you end up working with or that you choose to work with to the point that it it's essentially deliberate? It is. And I think they enjoy that because they see me more of a craftsperson in some ways, not just an artist. Um, they see me as a person who can also get the job done because it's actually a job, not only creating art, but if you're working with fundraising organizations, there are things that need to be done. And if you're, I guess, like a business person or a working person, it's kind of a throwback to back in a day when you had patrons and the artists worked almost as craftspeople and they had their guilds and they were actually working for people. So it's a very similar type of relationship. So in that respect, being a blue collar or a working artist, that is more valuable because they can, oh, a working artist, that means you're actually finishing and doing a job. So they're very happy with that. And it does help. 
Yeah, I like uh, I like what I'm hearing. Uh, this distinction that people ask ask about between craftsmen and artists. It, it's sort of it's not even uh, just working class. It's old school to believe that an artist is inherently a craftsperson as well. Um, a craftsperson in classical music, the the great classical composers thought of themselves as crafts craftspeople first. Um, they thought of themselves as doing something deliberate, you know, rather than just channeling some mystical thing from their inner spirit that they themselves couldn't understand. They um, were deliberately trying to reproduce in music certain emotions uh, that in the German they called affect. Also, I think when I hear this confluence of craft and art, I think of the deadline poets and uh, pulp writers and the the news guys that had to, you know, if you didn't write, you didn't eat that week. You know, if you want to pay your rent in New York, you better write something. They didn't have the luxury of writer's block or sitting and wondering what they're, <laughs> what, what, what is driving me in my inner spirit. Instead, they had to, uh, they had to produce. And universally, when they're interviewed, they, they say, this is something you can learn and you can teach other people. This is effectively a craft. And we look at many of the things they produced now as fine art. So I kind of picture you toiling away mercilessly, uh, and I say that with a smile and in quotes, in, in your studio, producing art, but with the ethic that if you don't, who will? And if, and if you were to just sit there on your, and stare at the wall and wonder what you're going to do today, that in, in some sense, that's laziness. <laughs> have I mischaracterized it? No, that's absolutely correct. And not only that, but you also have to define your terms. Like when I say I'm an artist and I, it's a craft, when you're saying that you're also, when people do craft, not crafts as in like arts and crafts, but a craftsman is constantly honing their skill and their trade. They're not just doing it, you know, willy nilly. You know, they're, they're focused and they say, you know, I did this, I could do it better. I bet if I did this, I could do this better. Oh, what if I... So you're constantly refining and honing your skills. You're constantly looking to improve. You're not just doing it. And so, yeah, it's all that and more. Well, a little side note, uh, some of the visual artists that I collect are, were, were craftspeople as well, just because they did their own frames uh, and their frames lended to the aesthetic in a way that, you know, I, I can tell that... Um, the workmanship they put into them and you know, that it was all part of a piece for them. There was no real distinction but between uh, just the fine art and the frame. And a lot of people, of course, will hear that and say, of course, it's all one and the same thing. It's part of the art. Yes. And the art's part of the craft. You know, so I, I love this. In fact, you know, at some point I, I heard a rumor, uh, Donna, that you don't even like the word artist, that you, you kind of blow it off a little bit. And, I do. <laughs> and uh, so I feel it incumbent upon me to ask you, you know, one, what, what's going on with that? And two, do you, do you feel that isolates you or separates you from other artists who feel the opposite very strongly? I mean, you hear people say it even before they've made anything. They'll start saying, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. Darn it. I want to be taken seriously as an artist. And you're saying, I'm not an artist. <laughs> But wait, I don't go out of my way to say, uh, it took me a long time to say, I am an artist, or I am a professional artist. I, it's, it's just, it just sounds so, I guess I know so many artists who are like, ah, la, 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 you know, and they, they wait for their inspiration, or they, they're trying to do these lofty things. And I'm very simple in my art, not simple in how it's created or anything, I can get very complex with it. But it's very simple for, for me because I look at it as a skill that I'm constantly studying, like a student 
and I just, it's one of those things where it's like, are you an artist because you call yourself one or should you wait until someone calls you an artist? It seems like something that is like a knight, sir, somebody, you know, and I almost have that feeling about it. So rather than say whether I'm an artist or not, I just go, I paint. <laughs> and I leave it at that. I'm a painter. I paint pictures. Well, it makes sense to me. You know, it's one of the reasons I, I don't really go to writers groups, um, even though my art is literary. It's um, uh, there are people that will tell me that uh, a writer is anyone who's ever written anything. And I, I don't I don't think that's true. Um, I, I once built a doghouse that doesn't make me a carpenter. And I <laughs> I tend to think. And, and so when somebody says, are you a writer? I'll say I, I was last week, but not this week. And, you know, it just depends on what, <laughs> what how committed I was, what, whether I'm doing the work, you know, the answer changes, you know. So, uh, no, I'm not going to commit to that. So I love what you're saying. It kind of has some integrity to it. And I, I find that to be having come from a working class background myself. I find that to be uh, part and parcel of the, the working class ethos. Now, I want to ask you a little bit more about your sales strategy because it's, it's fascinating to me. You know, you've worked with partners like the North Carolina Maritime Museum and uh, the Pirate Invasion, Beaufort Wine and Food Women's Club in Beaufort and Kit Jones Project. You got all of these sort of organizations and groups and you partner with cause-based organizations and you amplify their messages through the use of fine art. And that premise as a sales strategy, Donna, you know, it when I first heard it, it it just really struck me like, of course, of course. And why not? And why isn't everybody doing this? I mean, in the end, it strikes me as so novel to think that one could ex extend and amplify uh, a particular cause-based message with fine art, to have fine art be one of the many expressions besides just media, social media, word of mouth, and the you know act direct activism, the usual list of, of suspects that, that go into cause-based activity. But on the other hand, uh, when I heard it, I, I sort of went, mm, you know, is this being done a lot? Why hasn't anybody said this before? Of course, you know. So my question is, it seems novel. How did you arrive at, at this strategy? What, what brought you here? Oddly enough, it was a, a combination of things because I had to find a way to market, network, and advertise myself. I also did not want to use social media. <laughs> I didn't want to use Instagram and Facebook. It's just, that's not me. And I know that. And doing actual painting, I'm in a niche market of maritime art right now. And I also live in a very tourist community. So a constant, constant asking of, can you donate this? Can you donate that? And I'm like, no, I cannot. So I figured, how am I going to leverage what's coming my way? which is, can you donate this with what my needs to be, to be marketed. So for me, the North Carolina Maritime Museum, I'm doing maritime art. They have a, a list of over 5,000 people who are into maritime art. Why don't I see what I can do with them? And because I approached them with it, and this was more advanced. This is what I did with the Clark Ewing Fund, learning a few things. I said, here is what I want to do here's how it'll help you. Here's how it'll help me. Here's what I have, you know, expectations. I want you to put me in your newsletter. I want you to have a piece of my art in every newsletter that you have. So I'm getting all that marketing to a target audience without saying, Hey, give me your, <laughs> give me your list. Give me a list of people because that's money. That's their money. 
And so if we can make it where I'm not donating, because I don't donate anything, they pay me. They pay me materials. They pay for the framing. They pay for the advertising. And so I have it set up where I may be donating my time, but I'm not out any money. And when we're not doing anything for the big gala, it's a gallery split 50-50. So it's no different than being in a gallery, except for it's a targeted maritime audience, which is right up my alley. So you really got this, uh, the nuances of this strategy kind of worked out. I love that it kind of came organically because I hear that from a lot of working artists. They say they're being asked to donate, you know, more than they are being asked to, to uh, about purchases. And there's almost an expectation that, of course, you're going to donate. I mean, you believe in all the good things, right? Human rights and animals and the earth. But uh, and if you believe, you'll donate. And at some point, you know, almost all of them have said, multiple ones on this show have said, um, you have to start saying no or you, or you don't have a profession anymore. You've got to run a business. You can't just uh, donate a, ca- a car if you're a, a car salesperson, uh, you know, every other week to somebody because they say, well, you do care, don't you? So you figured out a way to say no and then to turn it into, but I can do something for you that's custom, that's really interesting, that will amplify it your message and that will um, actually cause people to take an interest in your organization. And of course, you'll pay for that. And right. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. You're going to pay me for the no. Only you, Donna, that is so much your personality. You're going to know and you're going to be glad of you. I said no. And now you're going to pay me for the no, because I'm going to show you what's in my other hand. I, I just love that. <laughs> and what's been the response? It's been fantastic. They love it. And, and what it is, it's, I'm not just saying no. I'm saying, let me educate you on this. Because a lot of times people say, oh, let's just get an artist to donate something. And it's, it's like, a, everybody else does it. Let's do it. And they are under the misguided conception that, one, it doesn't cost anything for the artist. They wanted to give something to a good cause. It's exposure and a chance of an exhibition. It, you know, they're raising money. It's a tax, a tax deduction for you, which, you know, all these things are not true. But they believe that they are. So until you say, you know, it does cost me money in materials. Uh, it does cost me money in marketing. Here's an idea of how much something like this will cost. Now, my time costs more than that. Which would you rather I donate? My time or the materials? Well, they always want to pay me the materials. Same with the framing. Look how much this frame is. If you want me to donate all this, this, and they don't understand that when you donate something, you're not getting a tax deduction. You cannot get one as an artist for donating a piece of work. So if you want that tax deduction, you have to work with the group and say, all right, I will get paid this money, and then I will donate this money to you. And that way the artist can get a tax deduction. But they also have to be willing to let you have the money, and then you write them a check. But I like also that you followed it up. I mean, when you talked about the gallery relationship with the organization, you're, uh, you're not, you've not just found a more clever way to donate at lower cost, which doesn't make you any money. You've found a way to parlay that into an actual sales strategy. And, and so I love that. But I have a question about you because you, you're committing a heresy here, you know. I mean, not, not one, of course, several. First, there's I'm not an artist. And, and then there's, you know, no, I'm not going to donate to your cause. Pay me. So both a couple of nice heresies. I'm really proud of that. I like that. 
But you got another one, which is I'm not going to use social media. So, I mean, I heard that early on, you know, and I in the show. And I want to ask you, what about the people that are saying, you know, you're an artist, you have to use Instagram. You're nobody if you don't use Instagram anymore. Um, have you found that they're just wrong? And if they're wrong, can you tell us why they would be wrong? Yes, I can. Um, and a lot of it depends on what type of art that you do and who are you selling to and what your goals are. So for me, my goal is to do very expensive paintings that are a museum quality that I'm hoping will be in museums or in very high-end homes. The chances of selling those online, fairly slim, not impossible, but fairly slim. And plus, I just, I just don't like being on the computer all the time. If I can help it, I, I just don't want to do it. But I am also in a niche market. So my, my niche right now is maritime. So the people who do maritime are a, it's a very small group. And a lot of them, they don't want to be on the computer. They want to see it live. And they're going to go and see it live, which is why I want to go to the show. Because if I go to whatever show my work gets in, I can meet those people. And that's when I will actually make the sale. So I have my list. I do a newsletter. I do two news newsletters. People who sign up on my website get a newsletter, which is probably, I do three or four a year, maybe. But I also do a collector's newsletter. So if you are really serious about buying a piece from me, or you have bought a piece from me, or you've come up to one of my events, you get a special newsletter. It's exclusive. I tell them it's exclusive. I give them some options and some opportunities that once I put the stuff in the gallery online, those opportunities are gone. So it kind of gives them a, a time frame in which they actually have to do something. So my open rate for my newsletters is between 80 and 100% those special newsletters, other newsletters, maybe not as much, but I have a minimum of an 80% open rate because people want to see my newsletter. They want to see what I'm offering them. And this is, and this is how I do it. This is how I meet them. And by word of mouth from them or from like, if I'm doing the Kit Jones project, that is all boat related. Maritime museum, boat related. Mystic Seaport, maritime related. So when I go to those specific events, that's when I work, and I work really hard. Well, first, let me say that that open rate is pretty great. Um, I realize it's because it's highly targeted, but, you know, the marketing is one of my fields, um, and the uh, average open rate is just a, a little over 19% um, for any, any other kind of business, and 25% open rate is considered excellent. If you're hitting that consistently, you just rock. So um, to get that kind of open rate is pretty killer. Um, and, you know, one of the only justifications I've heard for why you have to be on social media, there's all kinds of reasons why it might be beneficial to be on social media. But, um, but the biggest argument for you have to is that the engagement rate is higher. The, open, the equivalent open rate is pretty darn high. But the truth is email actually beats social media still. Um, there's still a lot of people using email and the myth of its demise is probably very premature. And so you've kind of discovered not only your niche, but also the particular marketing strategy. It's not like you're following somebody's 
uh, blindly advice, but you're following a marketing strategy that is aligned with your sales strategy, which is aligned with sort of your career blueprint and brand narrative. You know, the fact that you do niche work is aligned with the fact that you're, you have sort of working class sensibilities about it and, it, and it all becomes part of your blueprint, part of a piece. I really liked what you said about, you know, that you sort of said that for your type of art, you know, you're saying for the, the type of art that you present and for your particular uh, strategy, and you talked about being in a niche. And I wonder if as a representational artist, you know, you're not doing abstract maritime art, abstract expressionist maritime art. I mean, you're painting things that we can recognize that are representational. That puts you in a smaller segment of the market too, doesn't it? Do you ever feel like you're a, a sort of a representational painter in what is currently an abstract expressionist world or at least an abstract expressionist fad? Absolutely. <laughs> and actually, um, my work is, it's so abstract, it's real. You know, I, I took a class with David LaFell, who is an extremely realistic painter. And he focuses on what they call abstract realism, where painting abstractly makes it just very real. And um, it doesn't bother me. I'm a realist painter, and that's what I want to be. And when most people see my paintings and they go, oh, this is a nice boat and a water and a marsh or whatever, I don't see it that way. I see a red shape with a green shape and a blue. So I'm seeing it abstractly. I'm painting it realistically. And it makes it so much more acceptable, at least in the maritime world, where realism is very important in maritime art. And specific and correct things like your lines have to be exact. If they're not right, nobody wants a boat that doesn't float in the water. They don't want the mass tilting. You'll never sell that picture. It's got to be perfect. Well, it's funny though. Um, I wouldn't have understood that if I hadn't seen your work. And I think it's because I'm part of a generation that doesn't have an aesthetic language. You know, I'm, I'm not quite down at the level of, of it's good, it's all good, it's nice, it's all nice, but I, I don't have a very developed aesthetic language like a lot of my colleagues and peers, even though we're sort of college educated, etc. But when I look at your work, you know, the realism is there, the correct use of angles, the correct use of perspective, lighting, and shadow, um, and yet it's hard for me to tell you about your work, you know, because I could be wrong. But, but this is what I see. You're doing something abstract in the sense that I can see that your lighting is not just about being the correct lighting for the time of day, uh, but that your use of those natural elements is adventurous. And it's, um, it's like a day on steroids. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. I love hearing what other people have to say about my work. I, I really do. It, it's, it's very interesting. And um, I like that it's adventurous. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, you've seen lots of realist paintings that are boring because they're just literally a one-to-one -one representation of a dog in front of a barn. We've all seen that, right? But that's not what you're showing either. It's not a mirror image or a photographic realism. I used to do that. I used to be a photographic airbrush. I used to I mean, airbrush where you could not tell the difference. It was every, dot for dot per square inch. It would be perfect. And uh, it technically proficient, great. But once it got past that, you, you didn't get that emotional quality. I would have a show and I would be, oh, man, this is disappointing. Be, oh, this is great photographs. And I'm like, yeah, no, not what I want. That's why I decided to go into oil painting and really learn how to 
put some paint on the canvas, or in my case, boards. I don't paint on canvas. I'm trying to catch more of an emotion or an atmosphere, more so than a representation of here is a scene enjoy it well that's what i was going to say when i look at your your painting of this uh i i don't know what you call it uh but i would call it a two-handled fishing trawler um so you see that painting i'm reminded of a of a line out of seinfeld the sea was angry (laughs) that day my friend like an old man trying to return (laughs) soup at a deli you know and i i look at it and it's like yes it's not just a one-to-one of the sea the sea looks angry (laughs) you're conveying an emotion in that particular one (laughs) awesome (laughs) well that's fun stuff um so let me ask you then what does one do when a particular because i think people ask this question a lot uh what does one do when a particular genre is dominant uh in the market when people are are clamoring for a particular style uh, whether it's this month it's you know painters of light and next month it's you know um uh, Jackson Pollock clones and and so on, uh, or that it's an overall trend uh, like you know the fairly resilient uh, persistence of abstract expressionism. What what does one do when that's not your genre? How do you roll with that? What, what's what is it necessary to do to to be in business as a working artist? Hmm. You do what you do, and let those people do what they do. That's really the only way you can do it. I would like to think that if I was to say, oh, and I thought of this. I'll get a pen name and I'll paint this abstract stuff and see if I can sell. I don't want to do that. I could do that. I don't want to do that. And I'm not going to do that. But if, if, if there's like a flavor of the day, then the next day there'll be another flavor of the day. Now, if you want to chase that, if, if that's what you find to be exciting and fun and you do small pieces and you're going to kind of do that and chase that and it's like day trading, it's something to do that's exciting, cool, go for it. That's not what I'm doing. I'm going to do what I do because I like doing it. And if I make a change, like I did in in June, I made a change with how I actually put the paint on the board because I grew as an artist because I'm deciding I'm going to focus on edges. I need more space in my painting. So how do I do that? And then I'm learning how to do that, how to make this edge look better than that edge and move this edge around. And And if my style changes a little bit because of that, great, because I'm learning and personally growing how I want to paint. You can't add emotion into something if you're not truly interested in it. You just can't do it. And you certainly can't do it for a long period of time. So you have to have confidence in what you're doing, what you want to do. So we're kind of jumping around between, you know, blueprinting your own career and including sort of the emotional output of that about the career should serve you, not the other way around. You know, you do what you do, as you put it, to um, sort of your sales strategy to the work itself um, and sort of the response to people who, you know, without us talking about it quite so concretely, but the response to people who, who try to fit you into a different mold, whether it's, you know, you should be, you should be starving, just donate your stuff, or um, you should be on Instagram because everybody in marketing says you should be, except me, of course. And uh, would you, uh, you, you should be um, finding a way to, uh, to, to follow the latest trend, right? You know, all of those sort of things you have to have kind of your own response fully fleshed out to in order to sort of make it out there. Um, I want to just pause for a second and ask you uh, another sidebar, try to introduce another element to the show, and then I'm going to come back a little bit to your to your sales strategy, because there's a couple of things I want to ask you about in particular I think the audience will want to hear. But 
you love Rembrandt, uh, is what I've heard. Uh huh. You're you're a Rembrandt fan or fanatic. I don't know what you know. Fan fanboy is another term. I don't know what to call you. But can you just tell us a little bit about that and, you know, wh- why and how that you got there? Well, have you ever seen one in real life, a Rembrandt? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, I know, I know a lot of artists, you know, through books, mostly books, not so much online, recently online. But when I was, uh, when I was a kid, my dad brought me to flea market, you know, yard sales, you know. And he was teaching me. My mom was there, too, I think. It was how... To buy something at a flea market and you know you know barter and but be prepared to walk away if they don't come up to whatever price it is that that you want to to buy it at and i'm like okay yeah yeah and then i saw this little painting it wasn't a painting it's etching it was maybe postcard size and it was in a frame and it was a self-portrait of rembrandt when he was younger and i thought i loved it i got five dollars well i had five dollars so I said, I'll take it. And my parents looked at me like, I thought we were talking about bartering. And, and the, the guy had heard, too, because my parents were, you know, trying to teach me. And he's listening. So he's ready to barter, too. And I said, I'm not walking away from this. I'm buying it. I have money. And I took my painting. And that was it. And I still have it. It's in my studio next to a poster of a painting of Rembrandt that I got at the Rembrandt show in Boston. And the thing that I like about him is that he was probably one of the first abstract expressionist type painters. And, and you wouldn't think about that until if you see the paint in real life, the paint is so thick, but it's so defined, but it's so emotional and it's so abstract and it deals with balances, thick paint, thin paint, warm colors, cool colors. It just, it has so many levels that you can, the more you learn about painting and the more you learn about art, the more you can appreciate, you can always go back and see something new, see something different, which is why he's just one of those always like the angel on your shoulder. Uh -uh Uh-uh-uh, don't do that. It would look awful. Thanks, Rembrandt. Take that out. (laughs) So it's just just something that you got to have your your role models, even if you don't paint exactly like them. There are things that they do that you can learn from, and I just love it. Well, it's interesting that uh, you refer to him that way as an abstract expressionist, given that, you know, he probably used mirrors to trace his self-portraits. But, you know, then they become obviously a lot more than that. And I thought when you said, uh, you know, have you, <laughs> you his self-portrait was a thing, it, he didn't stand out to you because he's a beautiful man. I mean, this is a craggly appearance, you know, to put it mildly. Uh, you know. Well, when he was young, he wasn't. <laughs> I don't think I've seen the self-portraits when he was young, but I've seen the ones where he's craggly. And uh, and he looks like uh, he looks like a, a lot of uh, knife painting. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he did, he did a lot of stuff um, with portraiture that were kind of a little renegade at the time too, how he would set up, you know, the, the different paintings were kind of on the, you know, I'm kind of like that a little bit. As soon as someone says you should do this, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. It almost looks like in one of his, uh, works, it almost looks like he's using an impasto technique, uh, you know, on top of of the drawing. It's kind of interesting, but, um, all right. So then, you know, that gives us a little perspective. Let's zip back over to, uh, talking about your market a little bit. So, 
you talked about using email newsletters, but but you have two, and and you sort of create this exclusive insider feel to your to your particular body of work, or or an insider feel to access to you and that that work as a collector. So how did you narrow down uh, who was most interested in buying your work? Um, you know, how did you settle on that? Wow, um, I didn't. They found me, and I put myself at, like, when I did the um, the residency with the Maritime Museum, I also, they have a big wooden boat show, so I said, I'm going to have something in the watercraft center, I'm going to have some artwork, I'm going to display my work. And they're like, okay, whatever you want. So I set up my work, and I set up some nice pieces, some sort of on the expensive side pieces, because I was, I'm not a product at Wayfair, and I didn't want people saying, oh, look, $200. No, that's not going to work. They had to be $2,000, or they weren't going up. And a lot of people came by. They liked the work. Oh, nice. I didn't even put business cards out. But some people would stop, and they'd talk, and they'd ask questions. How would you do this? Where are you from? Where do you show? And if they asked me more than one question, then I would give them a business card. And they would call me back or they would email me back. When are you coming up here or when are you coming up there? And just by talking to people at different events or shows, if, if they really showed interest, then I would have them contact me or I would take their card and contact them. And that's kind of how it, how it worked for a long time. And then I have galleries now. I did not have galleries when I started with Clark's Wings Fund. I acquired those along the way. And with speaking to my galleries, they are very helpful as far as who looks at my work. And the men love the work. And if it doesn't sell, it's because the woman wants something more nice, less industrial. But then I've had people go, oh, I love the industrialness. So I kind of do what I do. And I meet people at, like, I do a lot of shows every year. Um, my website tells me where people find me from, what state they're in. So along the Atlantic seaboard, I have a lot of people who look at my work and then Texas. So if there's a show along the Atlantic seaboard or a show in Texas or a maritime show, I'm going to enter it. And that's how I'm going to get my work out there. And when they have the show, I do my best to get to the show because you can actually meet people there and you can see who's interested in your work. And if they're interested, you talk to them. And just by creating that relationship, you create that long-term, I don't know, it's a bond of some sort. I mean, I know my people. I know what they like. I know what they'll buy. I may say, you know what? I have this piece. It's a little bigger than what you usually buy, but you might like this. And they love that. They like the personal attention. Well, so Donna, you, in addition to doing shows, uh, which are one type of event, you, you also do uh, special events and partnerships with restaurants and small businesses and i think that probably is partly to uh, help establish relationships with potential local collectors like for example you're doing um, you do these art for dinner events at one local restaurant you have another one coming up um, in the first week of march what is behind that why not just do shows why not keep it you know i think when some people hear that um you sort of working locally with local businesses, it might it could seem a step down from doing you know big big shows with with big names. So why why do it? Step up, it's a step up, and this is going to sound really weird, but it's cost effective. 
people nowadays really like events and experiences. And so I hear a lot about that. And also, I don't, you can spend a lot of money on a show, renting a venue, getting a caterer, all this stuff. It can end up being a lot of money. And if you want to go into these high-end shows, you can do that, but then you're not in charge of the show. Your piece that Spirit In is in the show. So I have a lot of collectors in this area. And so what I do is I pair up with a restaurant. And when I do an art for dinner, it costs me nothing. So I pair up with a restaurant during their slow season. I get a price per plate. I add money onto that, maybe $10. And that pays for me, my boyfriend, my volunteers, and I hang up my work. But it's just not an art show. You know, I give the food strictly to the chef and say, hey, here's my theme. Make me some food. And you're the artist for that. I'm the artist for this. I put my work up. I have it displayed the way I want it displayed. I have it lighted the way I want it lit. And then when people come in, I then do basically an infomercial. They get a presentation. They get a presentation about me, about my work, what I'm doing as an artist, what I'm learning, where I'm going next. You know, I can point and walk and say, here is an example of what I learned with this. See how I moved this. See how I did that compared to this piece, which was two months earlier. And then they get more of a feeling that they know the piece. They get the feeling that they know me. They've had a great night out. Usually sell, even if I sell one or two pieces, it's a great night. It's a great evening out. And it gives you a little more time with your collectors, too, to build that relationship. And this year, I took a really big kind of advertising gamble. I went into print this year. I'm doing a a year-long campaign with Fine Art Connoisseur and um, a digital ad with them and Plain Air Magazine, really trying to hit through print, see if there's any other market out there and where they're coming from. Well, when I talked to them, they actually donated a magazine. I told them 50 people. They're giving me 50 copies of the magazine so I can bookmark my ad and have that as like a, a hostess gift. And I was interviewed in another magazine, and I bought copies of that. So when people sit down, not only are they getting a dinner, they get a presentation, they're getting two beautiful magazines where I will have, you know, sign them and personalize them for them. So they get a great experience. They get to see where I'm going. They get to see me in a national magazine go, oh, wow, look at that. And it just elevates me in their eyes which then makes them more confident in buying my painting. You know, uh, this observation you made that experiences are, are sort of the thing now, um, I've observed it in a couple of other places. One is that we're seeing now um, as gallery, traditional galleries in some ways decline um, and often change their location instead of sort of living in ghettos of galleries in, in one area of the city. Uh, you know, sort of move uptown or to a different part of the city in order to um, try to reach an audience that sort of isn't coming down there anymore. <laughs> um, you, you see not only those galleries shifting their, their um, the tone of how they present art instead of just sort of the drive-by, walk-by, I happen to be on the sidewalk, I stuck my head in, 
approach to the art gallery. But museums are joining them in that they're now sort of creating experiences and offering and selling tickets to these experiences. So that's one data point, and then a, besides yours, and then another one. This happens in the music world as well. Uh, there's a, a place in Denver called uh, Nocturne Jazz and, and Supper Club. And uh, what they do is they'll have a jazz show that, that lasts for a couple of hours and they'll pair each course of uh, a five course meal with the music set. So uh, for instance, I went uh, to a five course dinner tribute to Thelonious Monk and each uh, course of the meal corresponded to a period within Monk's work that was being shifted on stage by the musicians as the uh, as they were bringing out that course to, to put on our tables. Uh, and so that, that creates kind of an experience like what you're talking about. And I think um, as a strategy, there's, there's good money in this <laughs> from what I understand. There is. Not so much where I live right now. That's why I usually sell not where I live. My audience is not here. But some of my collectors live here, and some of them will drive down from Virginia because they love to come here. And if you pair up with the right restaurant and you have the right people come, you can do well. But this doesn't cost me anything. It makes me look good with the community. The restaurant loves it. Oh, my God. The restaurant, I know the restaurant makes money. So when you do something like that, you can then take that. You know, I could go to the Maritime Museum and say, hey, let's do a special one with Maritime Art with the Wooden Boat Show do an extra one and I'll bring some other artists from Mystic Seaport or somewhere else and we'll come and do one of those here um, with a different, you know, a different flair, a different thing. So each and every single one can be totally different. You can do it with writing. You can do it with food. There's a chef that did one in New York with the history of how she became a chef and they called it a story course and um, people love them. They really do. Yeah, I, I would rather do that than just go out and um, sit in a restaurant trying to shout over the other people also having a conversation nearby and sort of get my food. Uh, you know, my waiter or waitress is schlepping it out as fast. Yes, the salad came at the same time as the pasta because we're really we're really busy tonight. I'd rather the I'd rather the venue have a captive audience with me there for a little bit more than the dinner, willing to pay more, but also I expect. Um, I, I miss the supper clubs of the 70s that were kind of like that. You went for the evening, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I miss those too because I'm old enough to remember those. And and I've done these down here with other artists where it's been a paint live experience or, I mean, just totally each one is definitely different and changes with the different restaurants. The whole ambiance is different. It's just fantastic. And, and who are you going to go out with? The same person you always go out with. Well, you already talk about whatever you already talk about. So give people conversation. You know, tell them, here's how you look at art. Here's how, here's how to make your, your house great. Wouldn't it be great to come home to this instead of bare walls? You know, and a lot of people are afraid to, to buy art. It makes them nervous. They're not confident. They don't know. Like you were earlier saying, well, I don't really have the vocabulary. I don't really, you know, people have that they don't feel worthy of the art. That's bullshit. I mean, ooh, can I say that? I'm sorry. Um, you can totally say it on our show as a working class artist. We'll, we'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been very good <laughs> with my language. But, you know, people, if you give them a little bit of confidence at an opening or a dinner like that, and you're, you're showing people, hey, look, you can have art in your home. Art is for everybody. 
you didn't come home and look at this every night, you know? And, and maybe you don't like this one. How do you know what one to buy? What one do you like? What one makes you look at it from across the room? That's the one you buy because you like it. There's no other reason. Well, I, I have to say that for me, I, uh, I don't let the lack of a, an aesthetic vocabulary uh, decide for me whether I'm going to buy something or not. I, I am pretty aggressive about making my own decisions, but I, I understand that people do that. I, I do have to push back on yet another point, though. Uh, you know, that you're always going to have the same conversation going out to dinner. I don't know who you're going out with, but I consistently go out with my girlfriend's phone. And that <laughs> phone, uh, I know she has different conversations with it the whole time I'm there. So, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> so you know, it all depends on who you're with and, and whether or not you, you have access to Instagram. Um, but <laughs> I'm going to switch gears and, and bring you to, because uh, there's just a couple other things I want to ask you about. One is about galleries and uh, the other is sort of about your big goals. But to nail the galleries part, you know, you work with multiple galleries and uh, people may not have heard that or, or deduced that from the earlier part of the show. Um, so I want to ask, uh, one, how's that working out for you? And two, is it ever too much to work with multiple galleries? It's not because all my galleries are different. You know, it's like when you invest, you invest in bonds, stocks, all these different things. Every gallery I'm in is totally different in how they handle the art. For example, Mystic, there's only X amount of pieces I'm going to do every year for them. That's it. That's all. That's all they want. And it's, it's always a show. One of them I paint live, so there's no worries. I'm there painting. Um, the other one's the international. And so they select their piece in May. And then that's it. That's what they got. Another one likes a certain type of art. They only want one or two pieces. Another gallery wants everything I have. <laughs> like, we want that. You can't have everything. We want that. We'll give me something back. <gasps> no. You know, so they're, they're all, and they all do different things for me. But the one thing that they all have in common is that I'm very comfortable with them. I'm very comfortable talking to them. I think we have a shared vision of presentation, a shared vision of sales, a shared vision of what we can do, and we trust each other. Now, I've been in a couple galleries that I was like, no, I just, it just didn't feel right. It just seemed everything was a challenge, and I just was not interested in the challenge. So I'm like, nope, let's just move on and find something that's a better fit. I'm not a name artist. Like I'm not like super well-known. And I think as you're growing, as you're becoming more known into, into the art world, you kind of have to kind of deal with some galleries. You, you have to get yourself out there. I think a lot of the people now who are like, oh, I can go online and sell. They were going to sell anyway. They're a known commodity. People... They have, you know, if you have 15 really interested collectors, they will buy almost everything that you make. So you don't really need a gallery at that point. You can just do it. But you have to get to that point. And one of the ways to get to that point is to work hand in hand. And you can learn a lot from some galleries. Each one has been unique and different. And I've either liked it or not. Well, that's what I, I want to ask uh, a couple more details about. So you've given me a lot, um, several data points to, to spin off of, three in particular. So I, I want to 
ask all three questions. And if you lose your place, just remind me to remind you and I'll tell you. So number one, I was going to ask you, have you ever been in a bad gallery relationship? And, uh, and if so, you know, how does one know one's in a bad gallery relationship? I, I assume that we've all been in a bad romantic relationship without having realized it on day one. You know, it took us a while to kind of figure out this is, this is kind of bad. Uh, so that's the first, first item. The second item is, you know, you talk about the need to either get to a place where you're working with a gallery or get to a place where you don't need the gallery, but you still got to get somewhere. Um, and so let's say that, you know, an artist is trying to get to a place to work with a gallery. Do you have any insider tip for how to do that? Because um, I think everybody sort of has that question. Um, if, if that's their goal, you know, how do I, how do I make it happen? Just because I want to work with a gallery on the main drag in, in Santa Fe doesn't mean I'll get to. And the third question, the final one is you talked a little bit about collaborating with galleries. I wonder if you could flesh that out a little bit more. You know, what specifically do you mean about um, gallery collaboration being helpful to your What What kinds of collaboration in particular? I'll start with that one because in particular, I have a, a gallery in Beaufort and the gallery I have there, I love them. And they're my most interactive gallery. Oh, and she's such a great salesperson. Um, she had me wanting to buy a piece when I was going in there to <laughs> to interview for her. I was on the other side of the wall listening to her sell this piece, and I was like, oh, I want to buy that. I couldn't see her, the piece, or anything else. And I'm like, oh, I want to be in this gallery. She can sell. <laughs> and so when I, when I talked to her, she has a lot of experience. She knows her buyers. And so she asked all kinds of questions about me, my style, my inspiration, and she used that for sales. Um, opportunities. So she knew as much as she could about you. And so when I talked to her about, you know, I'm going down next month to Florida to take a class. I said, you know, on my way back, I'm going to have a lot of paintings. Some of them are good and some of them are going to really suck, but do you want to see them? And she goes, absolutely. I want to see them. I said, what do you think about having a wet paint sale in the foyer? She goes, okay, let's do that. And then she called me two days later. She goes, I have a better idea. A week later is our first art walk for town. So why don't we do a whole demonstration paint sale right then? And I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know, so when you can combine and do stuff like that, you know, another gallery might say, oh, no, we don't do that. And that's fine. But she does. So why not try to make back some money that I just spent going in the class, making all these materials, all this gas, and I can make some of that money back right then, doing a dememonstration, meet some people. She'll invite everybody on her list. I'll get to meet a lot of people. That's fantastic. It's better for me. It's better for her too. And she can run them with our her other artists also. So it's more of a hand in hand she thinks like I do and is willing to capitalize on any small thing in order to get the art out there and to, to make a sale and meet people. And I like that. So bad gallery relationships. How do you know you're in one? You know. <laughs> I wasn't sure at first when I, I had gotten into this one gallery. Two of the ga- this one gallery that I just talked about, she called me because she was looking for a coastal artist. She wanted someone different for her gallery. She called me. This other gallery did the same thing. They called me. And, and it was the first gallery that had called me. And I thought, oh, well, obviously, if they called me, they must want and be able to and know that they can sell my work. So I thought, oh, 
I'll just do it. And so communication wasn't as good as I, like everything I had to send, I had to send two or three times. And then when I went up there, I was just like, you know what? I don't think I fit in this town. Everything was abstract. And then I thought, well, what the heck? She obviously thinks she can sell my work, so I'll I'll stick with it. And, and she gave me a show. And so I worked my butt off for the show. And then it did not end up being the way I wanted it to be, or even close to what I thought should be proper. So I just said, you know, I think this is time. I think we're not a good fit. But I just don't think I was a fit for the area, the type of art that it was. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm a big fan of going to visit. I'm more of a fan now. But I kind of got kind of like, wow, they are looking at my stuff in a gallery. Ask you, they usually, they're thinking dollars. They're not thinking, oh, it would be nice. They don't do things to be nice. They do things to make money. They're a business. So I'm thinking, oh, yeah. And it was like, oh, no, this isn't good. It could have been better. It's not like they were doing anything surreptitious or, or um, ill-mannered or, or unethical. It's just that it wasn't a fit and you could feel it. Even the town wasn't. That was uh, an interesting insight to find out that, you know, even a, a locale may not be your vibe. It may not be a fit for you. It sounds like uh, it wasn't Buford. Although when you were talking about Buford, I was thinking, uh, I wonder if Buford has Beaufort envy because, you know, they're so close together and they sound alike, you know, is this Buford? No, it's Beaufort. Get out of here. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to ask you then finally, about, uh, just to finish off galleries, um, again, artists that are trying to work um, with galleries, that, that that is a particular trajectory for them. What advice can you give or insights do you have? Oh, I have a lot and they require two things. One, you have to know what kind of, honestly know what kind of work you do and honestly know where you want to go and be prepared. And once you're prepared, and when I, when I say that, really have some good pieces that you are ready to show them. So you're ready to go and that you have to know who you are. So like, I know that I am more of an off the cuff, I do better in person kind of thing how you approach, there's all these rules. Darn, I hate them. Rules that this is how you approach a gallery. This is how you don't. No, that. know who you are and what is your strength. If your strength is writing a really good proposal then write a proposal to that gallery and show them the images. If you're really good in person, then go in person, but pick wisely when you go. Or even, you know, I called ahead. <laughs> I called on a, Sunday, this one gallery, because I figured the owner's not going to be there. The main gallery, it's going to be an assistant. So I called and said, hey, I'm interested in being in your gallery. What is the best way to see the work? What is, do you want to see it live? Do you want to email? And the guy was like, oh, do you have a website? And I said, yeah. And so he plugged it in. He goes, oh, well, I like this and this piece. And I'm like, yeah, me too. So what's the best way to, to talk to the gallery owner? And he goes, well, you're doing it right now. He goes, I really like to see everything live. So when can you come up? And there we go. And it was basically a cold call to find out what is the best way for me. And for me, it was in person. I'm really good in person. I am not good, or as good, I should say, online. But it gives you a chance to see the gallery if it's some distance away. It gives you a chance to see the gallery. Go to all the galleries in town and see if you fit into one better than another and like that one town, man, everything was abstract. I was like, no. But I knew I fit here. 
And I told them that I fit in your gallery. And they said, we haven't had a new artist in eight years. I said, until now, I'm your person. You have your art and it's ready and it's good enough for where you want to be. The gallery is different, different types of art. They all have different quality of art. So you have to find the spot that sells your art and that you as a person present yourself the way that's good for you, not because the rules say you send in a CD. If you want to be a professional artist and you consider yourself a professional artist, you better have a website and it better be good because that will sell you. It's the first thing everybody asks for with your website. So Donna, just in the interest of, you know, sort of closing with your, your big goals, you've been talking uh, offline about focusing on advertising and networking in the coming year. I wonder what are some of the first steps you're planning on, you know, taking or pursuing in, in those areas? Well, for, for me, networking is huge this year, and this is how I'm going about it. Because how to be better situated as, as an artist, how to get into some really big shows, like, for example, like Salma Gundy Club. I wanna, I'm hoping I get in this year, and if I do, I want to go to the show. I want to meet the people who go there. I'm also looking for avenues where other artists, groups that I think I could be a good contributing member of their tribe, I want to, there's a maritime group, and then there's another group out of Vermont, the Putney Painters, and get a little bit of a connection with them. I want to meet those painters. I want to meet those maritime painters up in Maine and let them know I'm here and I'm painting and I'm a professional. And to see see how I fit with that next level of artists. They're all at a level to which I aspire. So I want to go where they go, see what they see and and be there you learn the next level by putting yourself up there even if you're not ready for it um so that you can learn so i'm going to network with these people see how they approach things and aside from the artists i'm going to also you know network with the different shows that i'm going to i'm definitely going to go to these shows network with the people who are coming to see the art so it's like a two-pronged approach You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Ewing's Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes or wherever you tune in. For more information on Donna's work, visit paintedworld.com. That's paintedworld.com. For more information on the Clark Ewing's Fund, visit clarkewingsfund.org. And to sponsor our learning programs, including this podcast, with your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkewingsfund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Donna. It's been really great having you. Fantastic. Thanks, Daniel.